Thank you for the Lord Jesus, uh, the, the person in whom we encounter your grace and your love. And Father, fill our hearts with joy and transform us and continue to do a great work of redemption in our lives, I pray, so that we might be servants who live beyond ourselves for you and your glory in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in saying, I think this is going to be a great message, uh, what I was referring to was the passage. Um, I think it's a wonderful passage. Uh, I'm praying hopefully it also is a helpful message, but I'm not wanting to boast, but uh, I'm boasting about the Word of God. Uh, I think it's such a wonderful passage we're looking at this morning. Well, lost people really matter to God. And the question has been, do they matter for us? This is a theme we've been exploring over the past six weeks. And we've seen some of the most wonderful, powerful and challenging stories from the Lord Jesus as we've journeyed from Luke chapter 15. And we're up to the end of this section, it's Luke 19. And we've heard him tell stories and also there are stories that Luke recounts in terms of real life stories that took place in Jesus' ministry. Uh, There's the story, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. There was a very profoundly challenging one of Lazarus, the poor man and the rich man. There's the two men we saw who went up to the temple to pray. One is lost, one is found. There's a story last week also of the lost rich young man. A very sad story about a lost person. And what we've seen is that God loves lost people. And he's got a message of mercy and grace for everyone who will turn to him. And the key verse at the very beginning of this section has been, chapter 15, verse 7, I tell you in the same way there's going to be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And we might look at that and go, isn't that a great verse? Isn't that a great reality? But yet the people of the day grumbled. Uh, Not everyone was on the same page with Jesus. In fact, uh, this whole section from 15 to 19 in many ways came about because at the beginning of the chapter Jesus again is meeting with people who were in the eyes of the religious, uh, the sinners of the day, and they grumbled. Uh, They didn't like the reality that they were seeing before them, a person who was purporting to be, if I can say, a religious leader uh, and teacher, and he's there hanging out with what they thought were the sinners who should be avoided. The section Luke 15 starts that way. Luke 19, those same words will come up again. It kind of is an envelope for this whole section of lost and found. And it's worth saying within this section, uh, one of the key themes has been money. In fact, if you go through Luke's gospel, you'll see it's a major theme that he addresses all through Luke's gospel. And Jesus has said to us, if you understand how life works, You'll take your assets, your wealth, your opportunities in this real world and you'll use them to influence people's eternal destiny. And we come to really a marvellous story uh, at the end of this section, Luke 19, where kind of all of these themes coalesce together of lost and found, of radical transformation. And again, the issue of finances is there to see. And I want to say as we look at this last story, uh, the Christian faith is not a morality project. The Christian faith is not a morality project. It's not about making respectable people better. And I think people in churches often think that's what churches are about. Uh, They're about morality. 
they're about trying to make good people feel better and look better and behave better. Well, actually, that's not what we're about at a very profound level. Uh, we're about helping lost people become found. It's not a morality project, it's a redemption project. And it's about seeing people who are lost, for whatever reason, be found and reconnected with God and transformed in who they are so that they now live beyond themselves for God's glory. And you see this in the most powerful and simple way. Only 10 verses, but a profound story of redemption that finishes this section off. You see a seeking saviour, the Lord Jesus. He loves lost people and he seeks them out. You see a lost sinner, Zacchaeus, who in the world's eyes has everything. He is rich, he's powerful, but yet incredibly empty. You see an encounter with grace. Uh, the lost sinner finds undeserved love and acceptance with the Prince of Peace. And the last thing you see is this incredible radical transformation through faith and repentance. A life is utterly and totally redeemed and changed. You see, this story sums up the gospel. This story sums up Luke's gospel. This story of redemption. And so if you've got your Bibles there, let's open up. It's page 1039, and I'm reading from verse 1 of chapter 19. Jesus enters Jericho and is passing through. And he's on a journey that he's been on for quite a while, and he's very close now to Jerusalem, the place where he knows he must go to die for the sins of the world. And in this town of Jericho, there's a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. They kind of went together. And he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not be the crowd. You see, word has spread. Jesus has an incredible fame in his day and notoriety. And as he comes towards Jericho and starts to enter in, the word has gotten out in the streets uh, and the crowds have begun to gather. And the problem with Zacchaeus is uh, he's short. He can't see, literally. And so it says he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. There's this great intrigue. And he wants to see this famous traveling preacher and healer. And so Jesus is traveling through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem and Zacchaeus is there. And Zacchaeus is the archetypal person of someone who was lost in that day. And I want you to note a few things about him. Firstly, he's a chief tax collector, not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. And they were very unpopular in that day. Uh, to say that you're a tax collector would have been like saying if you're an Indonesian person today and you're living in the city of Jakarta, uh, I've got a new job and it's for Tony Abbott and it's in secret intelligence. Now, can you imagine how that would go down in Jakarta these days? If you're an Indonesian person saying, actually, I'm working for a group called ASIO. Aren't you pleased for me? Yeah, there'd just be silence in the room. Probably worse than that, if you've seen the newspapers in Indonesia, there's uh, quite unflattering caricatures of Tony Abbott, not a popular person over there. Tax collectors were equally despised. You see, what they did uh, was, as Jewish people, they worked for the Romans. First mistake, Romans were the great enemy of the Jews. And they didn't just work for them, uh, Rome had them collecting their taxes. And so Rome would give out, in a sense, a license and you would be a tax collector. 
and you would then go to your own people and extract money out of them and give it to your own people's enemy. And so what might happen is uh, Rome would say, okay, I want a 5% tax brought off the people. And if you're a tax collector, you'd go, okay, I'm going to take 5% for Rome and 5% for myself because that's how you earned your money and they would give you that license to do that. And so you would go and collect from your people and extract money from them and you would take some and you'd give some to the Romans. Now, Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. So he has others working for him. And so he's got his minions who are out there collecting taxes and so they probably took five for uh, Rome, four for themselves and one for him. And he's very wealthy. And he was very despised. And so he is this man of position. But he was, would have also had great power in that day. Uh, by virtue of his position and his contract with Rome, Zacchaeus was a man of power in Jericho. And people probably walk in fear of this little man because of his wealth and position that he held. And it's worth saying, if you're a tax collector, this is how the Jews thought of you. Uh, it's been recorded that they often excommunicated tax collectors from the synagogue. You were not welcome. You had sided with the enemy. And so this is Zacchaeus. People would have had a fear of him because of his position a despising of him. So he had great power, but he had great wealth. And Luke records that he's very wealthy. But he also had a preoccupation. You see, even though this man was wealthy and successful by the standards of his day, even he knew something was missing. Most people who get to Zacchaeus' position in life will realise this at some point they'll realise that money actually doesn't buy happiness. That power, at the end of the day, becomes quite meaningless. And they will try and fill their life in some way to create meaning. Uh, sometimes they'll drown it with alcohol as the pressure of that gets to them, or drugs. And they can lose it in a fog of drugs. Or they can bury it in the shallow grave of bravado. And tough talk. But when it gets quiet and there's no one around you except for you and God who you've tried to ignore, the truth sounds as loud in your soul as the blast of a thousand trumpets that you don't have something, that there is something profoundly missing in your life. And you see, those who really care about their souls don't do what most people do, which is bury that reality with the experiences and the acquisitions and the drugs and the alcohol and the whatever else tries to numb the pain. Some people actually work out they've got to start seeking. And Zacchaeus was one of them. And thank God Zacchaeus had reached a place where something had to give. Though he had everything, he realised he had nothing. It's no different today. I meet people like this. They realise that there is an emptiness in their life that can only be filled by God. And he had a problem. He was so short, he had to try a, climb a tree to see Jesus. So he figured out that if he ran ahead, he would wait for where Jesus would pass. 
And so we read in verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And so begins just in these very short verses, this incredible story of redemption. And I want to just stop and just kind of stand back a step and just look at what's happening in this story because there's some very profound things to note about what Luke is telling us. And the first thing I want to note is this. There's no one who's too far away from God. We can often think uh, that a person is too far from God's redemption. I don't know if you've ever thought that. I have. Uh, We can think, no, that person's heart is too hard. It will never be melted. Uh, That person's done too many things wrong to ever turn around. That person is so lost in their own world, they'll never find God. And we can look on people and classify people as hopeful or hopeless. Have you ever done that? I know I have. You think there's no chance for that person. They just seem lost in whatever way. And I think it's the natural way our hearts work. We give up on people. We write people off. We classify people. And you see, Zacchaeus was someone who'd been written off, who'd been classified in his day by the people who were religious. Lost, sinful, irredeemable. It's so good that Jesus is not like us. (laughs) Because he never put those tags on Zacchaeus. You see, the tag he put on him was someone who was lost, who he could find and so he went and I love the way Jesus phrases it I must stay at your house today Zacchaeus uh, there's this divine imperative to it and it's because Jesus loved this lost powerful irreligious con man He loved him in spite of all that he'd done. And you see the response of the people, verse 7. All the people saw this and they began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Doesn't Jesus realise what he's doing? He shouldn't be hanging out with this enemy of the state. And it begs the question, what are we on about as a church? I think we need to keep asking this question because it's so easy for churches to fall into the trap of thinking we're into morality projects, making good people better, rather than realising we're actually about a redemption project, helping lost people be found and redeemed and transformed through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this story is so clear to tell us we're not on about morality projects of making good people better. We're on about redemption projects of helping lost people come home and be transformed through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus finishes this story by saying this, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. You see, there is no one who is too far away from God. 
I think it's one of the reasons why Jesus, when he looked at Zacchaeus, said, I'm going to save this man of all the people because he is so lost. He is so profoundly lost. He has deserted his people. He is ripping them off. He is hoarding his wealth. He is living entirely for himself with no reference to anyone else or the God who made him. And Jesus looks at him and says, I love him and I'm going to change him and I'm going to save him. And it gives hope for anyone who may hear that there is a God in heaven, that this God in heaven loves all people and there is no one too far away. There is no one who is too lost. There is no one who is too sinful. There is no one who is too unclean because of what they've done. There is no one who cannot be saved, redeemed and transformed. One of the most powerful stories I ever heard was reading a book about a ministry of a man who is a minister in New York City. And they have a ministry that's profoundly seeing lives change from all kinds of backgrounds. That ministry reached into one of the prisons. And one of the people who came to Christ was a mass murderer. Now, I can't think of anyone who is more profoundly lost than someone who fits that category. I think he was a serial killer. And he has been radically converted. And I think part of the radical nature of his conversion and transformation was this. He understood the evil of what he'd done. And he said, I do not and will not ever deserve to exit this prison for what I've done. And he does not desire to. He knows with a clarity that he never had before exactly what he'd done. But this man found forgiveness and pardon with God and has been transformed and runs a ministry in the prison. I remember reading it just thinking, that is incredible. You see, there is no one who is too far away, who is too unclean, who is too lost. And Zacchaeus would have fitted that bill in his day. It's worth saying the Apostle Paul was no better. He says of himself, I was the chief of sinners. And you know, this is one of the most profound truths of the gospel. God loves all of us, just as we are, with all of our faults and sins. And not just loves us, wants to forgive us, wants to transform us, and make us if I can say, trophies of his grace who speak of his love and forgiveness and hope. This is the power of the gospel. And this is what we're on about. A saviour who loves truly lost people. And I want to say to you this morning, if you've come in here and you don't know there's a God, and I know when people come in here, they think, oh, they're coming amongst religious people and I'm not kind of good enough to come in. And I often hear from people saying, maybe the roof will fall in. But the roof won't fall in. I'm here, okay? And I'm just as bad. In fact, all of us are. 
Now, we are not perfect people here. We're redeemed people. We're sinners who've been found. We are lost people who've come home to the Saviour, to the Father. And come and join us and be transformed by this same Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not too lost. You are not too sinful. You are not too hopeless. There is a God in heaven who has not written you off. And he loves you. And he says, come to me. Hear those words to that chief sinner of his day. I must come and eat with you this day. And he wants to meet you. And he wants you to come to him and be saved. And if that's you at the end of the service, I would love you to come forward for prayer and to chat. And to meet this Jesus yourself, we'd love to sit down and talk with you. So I'll make that opportunity available at the end. But that's the first thing. No one's too far away from God. Uh, The second thing is this. Uh, God wants to transform us at the deepest of levels. Uh, We're not just on about seeing people get saved. We're on about lives being redeemed. And you see this profoundly with what happens with Zacchaeus. He didn't just have a salvation experience. He had his life turned upside down. We're on about seeing lives being redeemed and transformed through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, this is why this story is so powerful because he was one of the worst sinners in Jesus' day and he is saved. And he is then transformed as he encounters grace and acceptance and love in a way he's never experienced before. You see, the world has shunned him, but this Saviour has accepted him. Uh, The world has condemned him, but this Saviour has forgiven him. And it changes him. You see, before he met Jesus, the thing that he most loved, that he most trusted him, that gave him the most sense of power and self-worth and security in his mind, was his money and his job. And he thought he was safe. And he thought he would find meaning through that. And for many years, That was the lie that he lived. But you see, he couldn't suppress forever the reality that there was something far more profound that was wrong, that was missing, and that he was lost because he did not have God. And he came to Jesus that day seeking, and Jesus met him. And this encounter with grace took place where he met a God who accepted him and loved him. And forgave him. And you see, Jesus doesn't just save and forgive people. He changes them. And Jesus profoundly changed the keys that day. You see, he'd ignored the guilt of his heart as he ripped off his fellow Jews and built his wealth and kingdom. But it all changed that day. And you can see the response of the crowd. They're muttering. And I want you to note Zacchaeus' response. I've got it on the uh, screen there. Jesus stands up and he says to the Lord, because he knows what they're saying. He knows what they're thinking. Do you know who you're sitting here with? This guy just ripped us all off for years. I can't believe it. But note the response to grace. The work it has done in his heart and mind. Look, Lord, here and now. 
I give half of my possessions to the poor. Uh, this was not just some private resolution that he might make and forget as he's having breakfast. This is in front of the whole crowd he's ripped off. Here and now, I say to you, I'm going to give half of it away to the poor. And if I've treated anybody here, which he had, <laughs> they all knew it, out of anything, come and see me now. I'm going to give you four times as much back. Now I want to say, this is for me one of the most profound stories of change. Because there is no doubt people love money. There's no doubt about that. In fact, that's what we've seen as we journey through here. One of the deepest idols of the human heart is the desire to find security and meaning in life through money. And it expresses itself in us loving money. And Jesus has said, no servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the way Luke has put his gospel together, it's fascinating because you see in Luke chapter 18 someone who loves money, but he never encounters grace. He says no to grace. It's the rich fool who went away sad because Jesus challenged him about what he loved and what he wanted. But straight after that, you see this story of another rich man who knows his need of grace and finds grace and lets go of the money. And he says, here, look, I, I empty my pockets. I don't care anymore. Have it. All it gave me was emptiness and guilt. Poor people come. I'll give you half of it. Friends, I'm sorry. I know I ripped you off. I'll pay back four times. Is that enough? This is the power of grace. It's why the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. A hilarious one. Because when you're giving like that, you're giving out of grace. You've been so transformed by grace that you just want to give your everything away. Lord, here I am. Take my life. Use me. Take everything I've got. I'm yours. I just want to say thank you that you've loved me and accepted me. You see, this is what we're on about. People encountering the Lord Jesus Christ and his love and grace so that they are never the same and they are servants of the world living by grace and our finances that we so cling on to we just suddenly become generous with our time that we treasure so much we suddenly love to use it in service of others our status well we really don't care anymore what the world thinks of us who we live for is the audience of one, the living God as found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's what we're on about. Redemption projects, 
lost people found in meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it happens, there's this incredible transformation that takes place. You may need to come back to the Lord Jesus today and encounter his grace and be transformed because that's what keeps us growing. Encountering his grace at the deepest levels of our life and knowing that he accepts us. You see, you'll grow as you believe the gospel more deeply and you keep living the gospel in how you work. Well, the third thing is this, and I want to finish on this one. Jesus attracted crowds, yet saved and transformed people one by one. And I think this is worth finishing on. You see in this story, you see crowds, but you also see a desperate individual. Uh, The crowds are listening, but Jesus sees beyond the numbers to see one person who he loves and wants to minister to. And I think there's uh, such a a trick we can get fooled by the numbers and the crowds and think isn't it great the crowds are coming and you see jesus was never overwhelmed by that and he looks across this crowd and he sees one he looks at all the people there and there's one person he knows he needs to go and minister to and you see he had an incredible ministry to the crowds of teaching and healing and he taught and he healed to demonstrate and to announce that the kingdom of god was coming And it was here in their presence. And you could easily think he's done enough by just announcing it and demonstrating it. But no, as you go through, you see he's got a great ministry to the many. But there's another side to his ministry. It's personal, it's individual. He met people in need and he ministered to them. And in the gospel, crowds flock and they want to hear him teach and see miracles and be cured. But what is significant is the stories of radical transformation typically always come when he's working one-to-one with someone. And he stops and he sees the one. And he ministers to their needs. There's the widow at Nain whose son is dying and it's an incredible collision on two roads as they intersect. Uh, Jesus' troop is full of joy, but there's this funeral party that is full of sadness and Jesus stops the party and ministers to the widow and brings the son back to life. There's Jairus' daughter who is dying and by the time Jesus turns up, is dead. But yet he sends the crowds away as he goes into the room and brings the girl back to life. There's a woman who bled for 12 years. Incredible story because the crowds are flocking around him and he feels the tug on the cloth of the one and feels the pain and ministers to the one. There's the boy with leprosy, there's the centurion servant, there's the boy with the evil spirit, there's the demon-possessed man, there's the crippled woman. And the list goes on and on and on of the one that he stopped and he saw and he spent time with and he cared for and he ministered the gospel to. And you see, crowds are great. But if there's no ministry to individuals individually... Well, there is no point. People need to have someone who will know them and minister to them, one to one. And I think that there is nowhere more important than here in Manly. When I first came here, someone said to me, and I thought it was quite a profound comment, you know, so many of the people who come here come with a story. Uh, They come with a backstory of failure is what they were saying. And I was talking to a Manly resident and he said, that's Manly. 
People who come here often have a backstory. They're coming broken. They're coming needing healing. And you know, friends, that healing will not come in the ministry to many. Though the preaching is very helpful to help people understand the gospel and live the gospel. People need someone who will sit one-to-one with them and say, today we're going to have lunch, just like Jesus did. Today we're going to sit down and I want to hear your story. I want to listen. Today I want to pray for you. Today I want to know you. Today I want to befriend you. Today I want to invite you into my home. Today I want to read the Bible with you so that you can understand it. Today I want to encourage you. Today I want to look out for you. Everyone needs someone who will sit with them and be their friend and be their helper and be their encourager. And friends, the staff can't do it, though we try. This is something we all need to do. This is something we can all can do. You just need to love God and love people and believe in God And be prepared to sit and listen and pray with people and open the Bible up and just read it with them. And if you can't ask, find out all the answers, come and talk to us. But the Word has its own power. God is the one who ministers to the many through His Word and Spirit. And He calls us to minister one by one, like Jesus did. Friends, this is an incredible story to finish off this series. Because it sums up the gospel. There is a seeking saviour and he loves people. And there are lost people who are rich but empty. And there is an encounter of grace that takes place when lost people come with empty hands to the saviour and say, here I am. Forgive me. Accept me. And there's a radical transformation that grace works in people's hearts as they come in faith and they receive his forgiveness. And as they turn their lives around and repent and start to follow the Lord Jesus. And as we finish this series, I'd like to just make an offer of prayer for anyone after the service. If you need more grace in your life or if you need to come and receive grace from the Lord Jesus for the first time, After we finish singing, I want to invite you to come forward. Uh, We've got an upbeat song, Amazing Grace, to rejoice in God's grace. But friends, the call of the gospel when you've received Christ is to now live beyond ourselves. And I want to just encourage us, that is what we're on about. We're on about working with God, seeing people redeemed through the grace and the love and the forgiveness that he brings through his wonderful Saviour. Jesus. Let's come to him now and pray. Let's just have a moment to be quiet as the band comes up. I wonder this morning if you've sat here feeling lost and you want to be found. Let me pray for you now. Father, I thank you that you know them. 
You know the emptiness and the guilt and the lostness that is in their lives and their sense of desperation. Meet them this day through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them to open their hearts to him and to receive him as their Lord and Saviour. Amen.